So for the last seven weeks, we have looked at this book. This is our last week in Nahum. Um, some of you maybe are rejoicing at that. But we've looked for the last seven weeks at this word of warning from Nahum to Judah. And this stark warning regarding Nineveh was intended to be a word of comfort and a word of hope for Judah. In, in the midst of Ninevite threats aimed at Judah, God is telling his people that he has not forgotten them. He will come and he will confront Nineveh. And he will not just defeat them, but he is going to wipe them out fully. And so in this, we get this depiction of God as good. He is the stronghold, the refuge that Judah needs in their day of trouble. And as we read this about Judah back in Nahum's day, uh, we need to be reminded that this is true for us today as well. We need God in dark days, but we need him just as much in our good days as well. And it's maybe in those good days that we tend even more to forget God. Today, we end this short book with a sharp word regarding the danger of slumber. The danger of slumber. What led to all of this for Nineveh? So let's read Nahum 3. We've just got three verses we're looking at this morning. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria, your noble slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. This is one of, I think, two books in the whole Bible that end with a question. So that's a really unique way to end the book. The other one actually is Jonah, the book of Jonah. And if you remember, I said at the beginning of this series that Nahum is kind of the sequel to Jonah. And so it's interesting that both of these books end with a question. I, the, these three verses are maybe, it's maybe it's not real clear what's going on here. Um, and maybe it's just kind of uh, convoluted. I loved prepping this sermon this week. I just thought there's so much good stuff in here. So hopefully you can catch a little glimpse of my excitement with this this morning. So, okay. Verse 17 begins with a focus on some significant individuals within Nineveh. So it says princes and scribes. So princes and scribes were important roles within the city and nation. These were Leaders. These were authority figures within Nineveh, but they're described here as grasshoppers and locusts. Now, last week, the, the last verse we looked at, verse 16, they, we also read about grasshoppers and locusts there. So the use of grasshoppers and locusts last week referred to volume. So in one sense, this is speaking to the sheer mass of individuals in important roles within Nineveh. There are many people who have ascended to a level of relevance within Nineveh. But in another sense, this is likely a contrast to what was aspired after. So if you remember, 
uh, previously we talked about how powerful men in that day liked to be compared to lions. Lions were considered to be fierce, noble warriors. But Nahum is describing these noble men, these scribes, these important princes, uh, important people as grasshoppers and locusts. So he's describing them in a very lowly way. Most pointedly, though, what's being communicated here is this description is driving home how quickly these important individuals will disappear. On a cold day, many grasshoppers would gather together to gain warmth from each other. But then once the sun came up, they would go their own way. They had gotten what they needed from others, and now they head off for their individual pursuits for that day. The idea being communicated here is that of authority figures who are frozen by fear. They're unable to make decisions that will benefit others. They are showing themselves to be small men. And at the, as the heat of the moment increases, these men completely disappear. It says here, no one knows where they are. What you find in heated moments when things get hard is you really begin to see someone's character. I've, I've talked to a number of you who have uh, shared with me through the pandemic some uh, tough work situations that you've encountered where your manager or some leader within your company has acted in ways that maybe they hadn't acted before, uh, acted in ways you didn't expect, acted in ways that were really angry. And, and this happens when hardship comes, you really begin to see someone's character as they're leading. So this comparison of authority figures to grasshoppers was really insulting because kings, important people, loved being described as lions. And a locust is a far cry from a lion. Now, given how the Bible is constructed and the fact that there is a divine author that is behind everything that we are reading here, it is not accidental that the idea of locusts is used here. And that locusts are used elsewhere in the biblical story. When God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, one of the plagues that he sent upon Egypt was locusts. And in that instance, we see that locusts speak to God's judgment towards sin. Okay? So it's not surprising that we're seeing this imagery here being used in regards to Nineveh. I was also reminded this past week how John the Baptist was introduced as he was charged with preparing the way for Jesus. In Matthew 3, 4, we read this. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts. Now, I mean, when you read this about John, like, who really cares about what he eats? This just seems really weird that this detail is included in the Bible. It's one of those details that you wonder why, why it is included in the Bible at all. Now, to connect these, okay, in the Western world, we have this taunting phrase that speaks to eating someone's lunch, right? Like, if you're going to dominate somebody, it's, it's the idea that you're going to eat somebody's lunch, as we look at John the Baptist, 
we find the one introducing Jesus ate for lunch what these important Ninevite men were described as. So, Jesus, Aaron boy, ate locusts, okay? So how much greater is the one coming after John the Baptist? How much greater is the one that John the Baptist is preparing the way for, the one that he is not worthy to even untie his sandals, okay? So this is highlighting the superiority of Jesus. If we're looking at the whole scope of the biblical story, even in this um, really weird little detail that we're reading about John the Baptist, if we understand the greater story, we can see even in these small details, hints about Jesus' superiority. But more than this, thinking about the plague of locusts, being a result of sin in Egypt. So as John eats locusts and he introduces Jesus, he is preparing the way for the ultimate plague ender. But Jesus doesn't figuratively do this as John does. Jesus actually, literally absorbs the plague of sin himself. And in this, He destroys the plague, and he sets us free from the tyranny of sin. The tyranny of selfish leaders is what we're reading about here in Nahum. Okay, verse 18. This is really where I want to hunker down this morning. There's a number of ideas I want to draw out of this verse. We hear an emphasis on the importance of leadership as well as a warning regarding following incompetent leadership as well. So first, we see the devastating effects of poor leadership. It says here, people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. Lame duck leaders will eventually prove to be self-interested. This will cause their followers to be alone, uncared for, and feeling like they are living on the run. Okay, no one has their back. No one is looking out for them or checking in on them. Back in chapter 2, verse 1, we read about how God through Babylon is envisioned as the scatterer. Okay, and here we're reading about people being scattered. The scattering of Assyria is a result of them trusting in leaders other than God himself, trusting in insufficient, self-interested leaders. Now, Israel was also guilty of this as well. They wanted to follow others than God, people other than God as well. And this led to them being scattered, being exiled from the land that God had given to them. This scattering is the result of slumbering nobles. Your noble slumber, it says in verse 18. Those who are high-ranking officials in Assyria are in a state of slumber. No doubt this correlates to verse 11 that we read last week and the charge of drunkenness um, that was given against the leaders in Nineveh. These officials who are charged with protecting the welfare of Assyria are not alert to what is actually going on in their nation. They are concerned with the cares of this world. These leaders are concerned with their own comfort. They're concerned with their own indulgence. 
But this description of slumber is not reserved solely for their physical state. This also, even moreover, I would say, describes their spiritual condition. They are spiritually asleep to the one true God. They had been invited into repentance. And yet, this is why Jonah was sent to Nineveh. The the exact reason that God called Jonah to do something that endangered his life, right? He went to Nineveh and called them to repentance, but Nineveh chose to sleep on God instead of to repent and come alive to God. They looked to other things for life and for excitement. And the correlation to a spiritual reality is then seen in the most damning phrase in these verses. We read here, your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. This is a pointed rebuke aimed at the leader, directly at the leader of Assyria. He is being called out. His leadership, or lack thereof, is being exposed in this trying time. Now, a quick aside here. Uh, I thought of this week about Nahum uh, and the fact that he is writing all of this down. Think about the risks that he's taking by writing this down and making this prophecy known. Think about the threat to his life that would occur if this ever made it into the hands of the Assyrian king. And you have to think that God intended for the king to read this, to hear this, given the pointed nature of the message throughout. As we consider this, we should hear an emphasis on the importance of valuing and speaking truth ourselves. Now, there are a lot of people, uh, and I would even say people who consider themselves Christians, who are taking up the fight of truth these days. And they're yelling from the mountaintops this idea of truth and how the truth that they're really going to bat for is my freedoms are being taken away. I, I'm hearing this over and over. That, that, to be clear, that's not the truth I'm talking about here. It's not the truth I'm saying we should be adamant about sharing with others, about standing up for. I'm honed in on here, or I'm honed in here on Jesus, okay? I'm honed in here on the gospel. This is the truth. First and foremost, that we need to preach to ourselves, but then that we also need to share with other people as well. Not nationalistic truth, but the truth of Jesus. That is the truth that we are charged to tell to others. Okay, back to Nahum's statement then. Your shepherds are asleep. So shepherds are charged with the protection and the provision for their sheep. Now, sheep may not be completely helpless, but they surely are not ferocious. What we can say about the sheep is that they, about sheep in general, is that they are vulnerable in the wild, okay? Sheep are vulnerable in the wild. And so Nahum is saying that the leaders of Nineveh have fallen asleep in their charge to protect and provide 
for the inhabitants of Nineveh. And this has left the inhabitants both exposed and vulnerable. So the demise of Nineveh is a leadership issue. Now, it may be in that day that the leaders of Nineveh were revered. If you think about like some of the great leadership books that have been written in our day, like uh, Jim Collins' Good to Great, okay? There may have been books like that written in that day about the leaders in Nineveh, about the leaders in Assyria. I'm sure there were many people that revered the leadership in Assyria, even if it was because they feared them. But what Nahum is saying is that at their core, these leaders who seemed to be so effective for so many years, they failed. They failed at their core. Even today, we could say, we, we could look around and, and from a cultural standpoint, we could say, man, there's all kinds of really good leaders. This person does this thing. This person wrote this book. This person leads in this way. But what Nahum is really driving home here is the import of spiritual leadership. If we get this wrong, then we fail. We could be a great leader. We could follow really great dynamic leaders. But if they're leading us to a misleading wrong place spiritually, then it fails. Now God, when we look at the whole of the Bible, God sets himself up as a stark contrast to the leaders of Nineveh. They are shepherds who fall asleep and make people fend for themselves. God is altogether different. He's altogether different. We read in Psalm 121, it says about God, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God sturdies the feet of those who trust in him. He keeps them. This is who God is. And just to be clear on the progression that we see in the Bible, the promises for Israel, as it's talking about Israel here, the promises for Israel are ultimately God's promises to his church. Okay, The national promises that were forsook by Israel become spiritual promises. God's chosen people is not a nation. It's not an ethnicity. God's chosen people are Jesus Church, all right? And Jesus Church is comprised of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so as we read about these leaders in Nineveh and we see their failure, this should drive us to the leadership of God. It should drive us to this reality. God is not like this at all. God is someone who will not go to sleep on us. God is someone who will not let our foot be moved. God is someone who will keep us in the darkest valley. God is still there, keeping us, walking with us, and that never changes. Furthermore, regarding this statement about the leaders in Nineveh, Jesus speaks explicitly about 
the idea of a shepherd, okay? In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Now, thinking about the leaders of Nineveh in context of what we're reading about what Jesus says about shepherds here, we can see really clearly that the leaders of Nineveh were functioning like hired hands. They didn't actually care about the people that they were charged to lead and to care for. They saw the wolf, and the wolf in this case is Babylon coming, and they left the sheep, and they allowed the sheep to just be scattered. Jesus, on the other hand, calls himself the good shepherd, and he promises to never leave his sheep. We also see him in his life laying his life down for his sheep. That this is what a true shepherd will do. Like the story of uh, the shepherd going after the, the one lost sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. There's not another comparable shepherd to him. He is the only good shepherd. He defines what a good shepherd is. He's the only one who can be trusted. And hundreds of years before his arrival, Jesus was talked about as this in Isaiah 53. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I love this picture of Jesus becoming one of the sheep as well, him identifying with us in this way. But we also get a picture of what true good leadership is. Quiet, humble, sacrificial love are reliable marks of leadership. Quiet, humble, sacrifice. Now, contrast this with what has become revered in our culture today, kind of bombastic, chest-beating leaders, leaders who will make promises that they cannot keep. That is not Jesus. He is quiet. He is humble. He is sacrificial. This is one reason why I'm so insistent on not placing hope in political figureheads. Because it ultimately leads to hopelessness. It leads to people feeling scattered at some point. Whether it's because of a failure of that leader. Whether it's because of a loss that they weren't able to remain in office, whatever it is, it leads to a feeling of uncertainty. And when we find ourselves in a place where we feel scattered, we feel lonely, we feel chaotic or maybe uncertain, it's very likely that we have placed hope or trust in something or someone 
other than Jesus. We've maybe bought into a worldly concept of what a good shepherd is, what a good leader is, or what kind of leadership we ultimately need is. At Center Church, we, we want to raise a high bar for leadership, okay? So we're, we're not just going to say, hey, just anybody can be in leadership. We want people in leadership to be known. We, we want them to walk through a process so that people can know that they can trust those individuals, that when the day comes, when the heat gets hot, that that person will not wilt, I love this quote um, by someone, uh, Ray Ortland, someone who's been helpful for me, kind of a mentor from afar. He says, we can be impressive or we can be known, but we can't be both. We can be impressive or we can be known. Once somebody is known, the luster of impressiveness, the facade of impressiveness is kind of torn away. Because we understand we're all broken, fallible, unimpressive people. That, that's just who we are. And th this is part of the danger of what has become so pervasive in uh, so many, I would say, churches. Uh, you could say other parts, but I'm going to speak as a pastor. In so many churches and for so many leaders is that we begin to lead from afar. We begin to put this facade up. We don't really let people in to our lives. People don't really know us. And then people are shocked when moral failures or other things, other failures come along. Well, the person was never known. No one was pressing into their lives. And, and so just so you guys know, like, I, I want to be a leader who is known. That There is not a question that is off base for you to ask me. I want you to trust who it is that you are following. And so I encourage you to press in, to ask questions, to try and understand who I am, who our family is, so that you can get to a point where you actually know who it is that you are trusting. I think this is part of, this all speaks to some of the danger I mentioned last week as I was speaking of spiritual malaise. So Nineveh needed leaders that would lead them out of the spiritual malaise. They needed someone to warn them. But Nineveh's leaders were off too busy seeking their their own comfort, doing their own thing, living selfish lives, just indulging themselves. Maybe quiet, but not in a good sense, quiet. They were removed, uncaring. They surely were not sacrificial for their people in any way. And when this type of leadership comes to light, no one is going to feel sorry for the leaders, that there will be no one to offer comfort to the leaders or the people following them. When leadership betrays people in this way, other people, people who have been hurt by these leaders, by these nations, those people will rejoice over their demise because their unceasing evil, as it says here in verse 19, 
Their unceasing evil has touched everyone. A couple points of gospel application for us as we close up today. First of all, Jesus is good. Listen, Center Church, I understand that a large majority of our gospel application points can be summed up in this statement. Jesus is good. But the reason I say this over and over is because I think we don't actually absorb this. I don't think we actually let this truth permeate who we are and how we live. I think we just assume this. We just take this for granted. In a sense, that's good. But in a greater sense, it's not good. We need to understand that Jesus is good. When he says, I am the good shepherd, it means there's no one else who rivals him. And the reality is, is many people today will infer that they are the good whatever. They will infer that they are the answer. They have the answer. And my call to you, my charge to you is that you not listen to them, at least not in an ultimate way. I'm not saying that they're totally worth not listening to. I'm not saying that but I'm saying in an ultimate sense that they, those leaders would not rival Jesus in your hearts because only Jesus is good. Only Jesus is good. Do you believe that? Do you believe that only Jesus is good? Do you believe that he cares more about you than you do? Because Jesus does care more about you than you do yourself. He has proven over and over that he will not strand, strand you. He, he will not betray you. He will not forsake you. Jesus will not abandon you. And in all of this, he is displaying his goodness, his betterness than anyone else or anything else. So when we wake up in the mornings, we've got to preach this to ourselves over and over. When we wake up and throughout the day, whatever it is, that thing that's drawing me in, that I am putting ultimate hope in right now, we've got to remind ourselves Jesus is better than that thing. Because only he is good. And then secondly, the call is to submit. And when I say submit to him, I'm saying really let him have sway in your lives. Don't patronize Jesus. Really give yourself over to him. Like when you get up in the morning, this is what you're living for each day. So it's not just give him a little bit of your Sunday. It's not just acknowledge him briefly before a meal or before bedtime. It's not just acknowledge him a little bit with your money or to do so begrudgingly, but to submit our lives, the whole of our lives, everything to be about Jesus, solely about Jesus, even if it makes us look a little weird, and it will, if we're going to make our lives solely about Jesus, we will look a little weird sometimes. 
But to do this is not drudgery. I guarantee you that the Christian life is not boring. Gospel living is adventurous. It, it will challenge us. It will push us into parts where we maybe don't want to go. But that is a really good thing. So let me close with this verse from Ephesians 5.14. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. Let's take moments to look at our hearts, to see where we're slumbering, where we're sleeping, and to plead with Jesus that he would awaken us. The one who went into the grave, died, and raised from the dead, came to life again, can go into those deep parts of our hearts where we are idolizing things that ultimately cannot raise us from the dead. And he can put those things to death and raise us to life.